0: So I'd like to begin the teachings today for a day long on happiness and joy with a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya that says, If wanderers of other sects ask you, for what purpose, friend, is the holy life lived under the ascetic Gotama? Being asked thus, you should answer those wanderers thus. It is, friends, for the full understanding of suffering that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. So you're probably thinking, what's that got to do with happiness? Here the Buddha is defining the very purpose of his teaching. The very purpose of the spiritual life is the full understanding of suffering. And to declare that. He's teaching his monks to declare that, to make that known. When somebody asks, what is the purpose of the holy life? To declare, it is for the full understanding of suffering. Now, the problem is, this sounds like a rather grim advertising pitch. So it's no wonder that Buddhism is suffering is sometimes associated With suffering. The Four Noble Truths play a very central role in all Dhamma teachings. And what are the Four Noble Truths about? They're about knowing suffering, understanding the causes of suffering, realizing that we can abandon those causes of suffering and cultivate a way to the end of suffering. And in fact, We can't understand the Buddha's teachings without understanding suffering quite fully and quite um, um, profoundly. But we also cannot read the discourses of the Buddha without finding repeated references to contentment, to happiness, to joy, and to peace. In the Middle Link Discourses, we find one of the kings at the time of the Buddha, King Pasenadi of Kosala, greeting the Buddha with profuse devotion, saying, Here I see bhikkhus smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, subsisting on what others give, abiding with a mind like a wild deer's. So many times we actually find in the texts that the Buddha and his disciples and the Sangha at large are described as being cheerful, happy, and radiant. Some famous discourses begin with a disciple asking, how is it that if they're speaking to the Buddha or about the disciples or the Sangha, the Buddha or his disciples, although possessing few comforts, and leading a life of renunciation appear to be so happy so radiant so joyful and we might consider how does the full understanding of suffering actually lead to the deepest joy a profound experience of happiness So as we discuss happiness, it's important to understand that within the Buddhist tradition, happiness is not limited to the scope of pleasant sensual encounters. It's not dependent upon getting and having feelings that are pleasant, pleasurable sensory experiences. The Buddha instead includes within the scope of happiness feelings that are peaceful and equanimous, as well as pleasant. And arenas for happiness that are non-sensual, perhaps the refined um, experiences of the concentrated mind, or the deep joy that comes when we see the nature of things in insight practice, are good examples of this non-sensuous realm for happiness. Again and again, when the Buddha teaches happiness, he makes an important distinction between feelings that are sensually based from feelings that develop through the refinement of the mind and the development of our spiritual practice. So he teaches his disciples to cultivate those spiritual pleasures and to let them serve as a support for the even more refined and powerful bliss of release. In the Middle-Length Discourses, the Buddha says, or about the Buddha, it, it, it says, The Blessed One describes pleasure, not only with reference to pleasant feeling, rather, friends, the Tathagata describes as pleasure, any kind of pleasure, whenever and wherever it is found. So he harnesses the strength of spiritual happiness to propel the journey beyond the confines of mere sensual experiences. One of the messages I want to offer today is an encouragement to enjoy your practice. Why not? I don't want you to hold yourself back from joy and from delight and from happiness in your practice. The spiritual life is a life of happiness. And the very basic practices that we undertake in insight meditation are intended to be joyful. You may not know this when you're on one of your retreats and you're doing very slow walking meditation and you're looking around at everybody else doing very slow walking meditation, looking at their feet, wondering, what's so happy about this crowd? (laughs) But actually, when we look at how the Buddha described these practices of mindfulness of the body, of mindfulness of the breath, the basic insight meditation practices that we do, we hear him describing them as pleasant abidings. Listen, listen to these two quotes, both from the Samyutta Nikaya. Here he's teaching to Maha Kasipa. Therefore, Kasipa, you should train yourself thus. I will never relinquish mindfulness directed to the body associated with joy. Thus, you should train yourself. Mindfulness directed to the body associated with joy. You've all practiced mindfulness of the body, haven't you? If not until today, we just did a mindfulness of the body meditation for the first half an hour. A simple one, but nevertheless, it is, was mindfulness of the body, feeling the posture of sitting, feeling the sensations associated with the breath. But sometimes we forget that that can be associated with joy. Also from the Samyutta Nikaya, it says, Bhikkhus, this concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is peaceful and sublime. An ambrosial, pleasant dwelling, and it disperses and quells right on the spot evil, unwholesome states whenever they arise. Isn't that a beautiful description of mindfulness with breathing? An ambrosial, pleasant dwelling. That's what we're practicing very often is mindfulness with breathing. Why can't we practice it in such a way that we experience it as an ambrosial, pleasant dwelling that disperses and quells right on the spot evil, unwholesome states whenever they arise? Given these two teachings, I don't think we need to learn special practices that are focused only on developing happiness. I don't think we need to train ourselves in happiness practices because I think the very basic practices that we do are practices of joy and of happiness. But we do need to understand how these basic practices of mindfulness, mindfulness of breath and mindfulness of the body, when skillfully developed, naturally lead to joy. So I want to offer a sketch of five kinds of joy that we find in the Buddhist practice. The first is a kind of gladness, a gladness that arises due to non-remorse, non-regret. And this is a gladness associated with all wholesome states of mind. And it arises when we reflect that our mind is free from unwholesome states. It arises when we reflect on our own acts of virtue and generosity, on our capacity for compassion, for love, and for kindness. The second kind of joy I'll speak to is a joy associated with renunciation. And this is a kind of deep contentment where we are content to live simply. We are content with what we have. We are content to be with what is. It's a mind that is free from the greed and grasping that can never be satiated and instead rests with this profound joy that comes in being okay with whatever is. The third kind of joy is, a, is an explicit development of joy called sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. And this enables us to rejoice in the happiness of others. To actually think of the success and good fortune of other people. And let that fill our minds with delight. <coughs> the fourth is a joy of seclusion. And this is the tranquility and delight that is associated with concentration. And might be uh, perfected in the deep states of absorptive concentration called jhana. And the fifth is that I want to mention is a joy of liberation. And this describes the bliss of ultimate detachment, the happiness that comes with release, awakening, enlightenment. Enlightenment is also referred to as the realization of Nibbana or complete awakening. It is not a mere placid state of detachment, but it is explicitly described as a state of happiness, the unsurpassed happiness, a state of bliss, the supreme state of peace. But to cultivate joy, we must first consider how we define pleasure and, to, and what we look to as the causes for our happiness. Because to cultivate joy, it is necessary to distinguish between pleasures that are based on unwholesome states and that lead to more addiction, craving, compulsion, increased sensual desire and conceit, and a joy that is based on wholesome states that lead to concentration, to compassion, to appreciative joy, to wisdom, and to letting go and release. This wholesome joy is balanced. It's unselfish. It does not require things to be different than they actually are. I really don't think meditation needs to be a grueling undertaking. Sure, it requires commitment. It requires dedication. But it doesn't need to be a downer. Quite the opposite undertaking medita- a meditative life and meditation practice, even when what we have to face is our own mind, and even when we don't always like what we see in our mo- own mind, we can experience delight that we're seeing it. We can feel the unselfish joy that comes with being aligned with the truth of things, and let that touch the heart. Whenever and wherever... We experience joy in meditation. We can pause. We can rest in it. We can let it grow within us and stop the tendency to rush on to the next thing, the next sensual encounter, as desire tends to do. We can let go of the wish to show off our successes or to gain worldly power or praise, as craving and conceit tend to do. The happiness and the joy that the Buddha taught turns the mind away from the sensual and self-centered stimulus to realize an enduring bliss that is not dependent on our kids getting into our alma mater, on our favorite sport team winning the the match, on our spouse's attention, or our favorite coffee shop having 2% milk and stock. How much of our lives do we live in contraction, attachment, fear of loss? How often do we find competition, envy, or jealousy arising within our own mind stream? And how much time do we spend in the space of joy, of ease, of openness and love? Can you simply enjoy the presence of a little moment of joy without demanding it to be a big ecstatic experience of joy and without trying to maintain it, to grasp it, to make it last longer. We can even begin with very simple pleasures, natural pleasures. It's springtime, seeing things sprouting, the grasses growing, it's a natural experience of joy. Watching the bugs buzz around and the, the, um, the birds twitter to each other trying to get the attention of their desired mate. It's a natural joy. As you're walking around this property, you might notice the turkeys. When I came, there was a male turkey with its tail out and strutting around, showing off a little bit, following this little flock of, of um, four or five female turkeys. I mean, it's an experience of joy. I don't know, maybe you have turkeys in your backyard, but I don't have turkeys in my backyard. So I couldn't help but pause and you know, enjoy their, um, their little dynamics there. We can experience the joy of the full moon. The bright moon, and it's quite amazing these days. The stars up in the sky. The way that the light catches on a dew drop and just shimmers away for a moment and then disappears. We can enjoy a hot shower. Do you take a hot shower this morning and enjoy it? I spent so many years living in places that had no showers, that had no hot water pumped into the places at all. We either carried water or we went to the river or we got cold water coming through a tap in some places. It was rare when I was living in Asia that I... Oh, no, the only place that I think I had hot water was when we would boil it (laughs) for the few hours that we had electricity. We could actually boil water with an electric thing one of those electric immersion heaters. So I still enjoy, I mean, it's been, I've been back for quite a while and I still enjoy a hot shower. And I know it is amazing. It is precious. It is not something to take for granted. It is not something that most people have. It is a total luxury. And I hope you enjoy it. Every day you take a hot shower. I don't know how many of you have dogs, but I think dogs are good reminders for simple happiness. All you have to do is just mention that word, walk. (laughs) And the little tail wags, and they get excited, and they get happy. It doesn't matter even if they're going around the same block that they've gone around before. It's still happy. Can we be just half that happy for the simple things that we do each day? you ever take off your shoes and walk on the grass with bare feet and feel the the softness and the dew. Do some little things that you used to do as a child that you enjoyed then. Let yourself do it now. When was the last time you went out at night and laid on the grass and looked up at the stars? You know, with the same kind of attitude that you had when you were, say, 14. And the world seemed so big and you seemed so small. There can be a delight and a joy in so many simple things. It's not that these are especially um, spiritual things, but I think we can start with little things. In fact, I think we can bring joy into everything not by having to make every experience pleasant, but we bring joy by bringing our presence, our appreciation, our awareness into everything that we do. And we can cultivate delight and joy in the context of our meditative practice. To delight and enjoy hearing the Dhamma. It doesn't mean we have to listen with devotion and Google eyes of faith. We don't have to get weird or extreme about it. We can still have a critical mind, but we can let it penetrate the heart and experience delight and happiness in being able to hear the teachings, to recognize that it is precious, it's a precious opportunity It's a rare opportunity to have all the conditions come together just to hear the Dhamma, to have a healthy enough body, a functioning mind, to have the leisure time to spend a day here learning, to live in a political environment that allows religious diversity, that allows the teachings to be given, and to live within economic conditions that allows us just this much leisure time to travel and to hear these teachings. It's, it's a rare set of conditions. And all of that, we can hear the Dhamma teachings because they've been preserved, preserved through countless generations of Buddhist practitioners, through difficult situations of famine and war. Somehow these teachings have lasted 2,600 years, and now we're sitting here Listening to these teachings, it's remarkable. It's a cause for joy. It's a cause for delight. We can also let ourselves be happy with a calm state. To not only seek happiness through excitement and thrills, but to find happiness through tranquility and calmness. Those simple pleasures that come in meditation. And to let ourselves delight when we have an insight. I know we all wish we'd have more of them, right? This is called insight meditation. And sometimes the insights that we have are not pretty. I don't know, have you ever had an insight into one of those ugly patterns in your own mind? Ones that you actually don't really want to publicize, but you saw how that nasty little habit or how that greedy little habit or that total delusion was functioning within your own mind. And seeing it clearly, we can delight. We can be happy in the experience of that insight, even if what we're seeing may not be so impressive. The fact of seeing it is. It's the insight that brings happiness and delight and joy. The wonder of our lives is really an incredible thing. And we can delight and wonder and have awe with everything that we're encountering. In a basic way, happiness is part of relaxation and ease. Some years ago, I was studying the Alexander Technique, a a kind of... um, of, uh, movement work, a kind of of body work where we are uh, aware of how we use ourselves in activity. I enjoyed the method very much, but one of the things that I remember was a very simple little instruction where for part of the breath work, we were given the instruction to think of something pleasantly amusing as we breathe. And I'd invite you. Just think of something pleasantly amusing. Did you notice any release of facial tension or tension around the jaw or the neck? An easier breath? Because very often, a simple thought of something pleasantly amusing. You know, a bird twittering, or a turkey strutting across something. You know, we're not talking about big, huge things. Just pleasantly amusing. A child going playing on the swing set or going down the um, the, the the slide. Uh, something a little delightful can often release tensions that we weren't even knowing we were holding in our jaw, in our throat, in our face. And those little shifts can help let go of patterns that keep us caught in patterns of suffering and teach us, help us, to find ways of being at ease, even in challenging and difficult situations. A Buddhist path of happiness, however, does not actually favor pleasant experiences over painful ones because a reliable joy cannot be based on the changing and fickle and fluctuating nature of feeling states. The Buddha focused attention on happiness as, a, as a associated with virtuous, wholesome states. And it doesn't actually matter if they're painful or pleasant in the feeling tone. So I want to first look at just this first aspect of happiness, the happiness that is the gladness that's associated with non-remorse. It's basically the happiness associated with a wholesome state of mind that includes all virtuous acts, generosity, compassion, the joy we feel when we kept the precepts, the ethical precepts that we were able to restrain ourselves and let go, and the joy that we feel, the delight that we feel in hearing the Dhamma or in practicing. Any wholesome experience can leave an imprint of joy that brightens the mind. You might notice it when you engage in any charitable project, any service project, or when you offer somebody food, or when you give a, a donation. These really are sources of happiness for us. And you probably all experience this in your lives. If not, please try it. Offer donations, offer food, offer your help, offer your service. And then reflect and see how you feel about yourself afterwards. Most people who engage in service often say, They receive more than they give. Giving brings a a priceless happiness to the heart. But the Buddha encouraged disciples to not only do good works, but to reflect on the good that we've done and to use that reflection not as a form of conceit. Oh, I'm such a generous person. Look at me. We don't have to have our plaque on the wall every time we give something or receive big, huge appreciations and thank yous. No, but we reflect ourselves, and we use that reflection on that wholesome state of mind as a resource for joy. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be um, traveling to Israel. I go there every other year to offer the teachings. And um, this year, I usually go for a month and usually do multiple retreats. This year, there are three retreats scheduled. But honestly, I have to say it is always a difficult trip. I love the Sangha. I love teaching there. But for me, it's a difficult trip because I have a back injury. And being on the plane and sitting that long, I always land in agony, in pain, just because it's hard for me. It's also demanding and tiring. It's a it, There's a, a lot of hunger for the Dhamma, and the retreats are very demanding. But nevertheless, I find sharing the teachings with the community in Israel to be incredibly joyful for me and quite inspiring, because I'm grateful for the opportunity to share the Dhamma in a place that so acutely needs and wants peace. Their interest is genuine, they practice sincerely, and although I feel tired afterwards, although I often have to come home and get treatment for my back again, I feel happy to have been of service, to have been well used. Sometimes when we live in the Bay Area and there's so much dhamma available, we forget how hungry people are for this elsewhere. Reflecting on our spiritual life can be a great joy. We can think about our faith in the path our diligence to unravel and to overcome any whole unwholesome state that might arise, any conditioned pattern that keeps us caught in anger or craving. We can reflect on the discipline that it takes to establish and maintain a practice at home, not easy to do with the demands of daily life. And we can kind of highlight the good spirit of our own hearts that we're actually interested in this kind of spiritual growth. We can reflect on the liberating teachings of the Buddha. This thought itself can very quickly elevate the mind and lead to superior and inspiring practices on the contemplation of the Buddha and on developing deep concentration based on the superior qualities of the buddha these elevated qualities of the spiritual life in fact in the anguttara nikaya it says that when one recollects the buddha the dhamma the sangha or one's virtues the various there's a set of six reflections then the mind is calmed and joy arises the defilements of his mind are abandoned just as when the head or the clothes or the body is cleansed and washed clean with a proper technique. I don't know how many people have done a reflection on your virtues or on the virtues of the Buddha. Both are very powerful. When we reflect upon our own virtues, we bring to mind some situation in which we did something good. Or when we kept the precepts. Maybe there was some time when you wanted to break the precepts and you paused and prevented yourself from doing it. Uh, Maybe there was a fly that was bothering you. And Or a mosquito that was biting you. And you had this impulse to swat, but instead you refrained from killing. It's that moment of refraining where the power is in the practice. That's the power. That's what we reflect on, is the potential that we have to restrain the unwholesome impulse. Maybe you saw something and you really wanted to snatch it, even though it wasn't yours. Okay, you're not all thieves, but maybe some little nasty impulse arose, and you didn't do it. You didn't take it. That not doing is the moment to reflect on. Maybe you had an opportunity on an exam or in some situation in work to cheat or to take credit for something that wasn't your doing, and you refrained. You gave the credit to where it was due, maybe to a team or maybe to a colleague. If it was yours, credit to do, then fine, accept it. But maybe there was a time when you actually could have skewed it either way, and you took the noble path in your speech and in your action. It's that that is the source of joy. And so when we reflect upon our virtue, we take it into our meditation. We take that as the subject of the meditation rather than the body or the breath. We turn the mind to that act of virtue and we let the thought of that virtue repeat it over and over again in our minds, remembering the feeling of the the potency and the wholesome state of keeping the precepts of restraint be a source of happiness and delight. And we let the mind settle in that experience. You may think that this sounds like an odd meditation, but actually it very quickly is a source of great energy in the practice and brings forth what are called the five jhana factors because it, it, it concentrates the mind and allows the mind to experience the delight and happiness associated with concentration and wholesome state. Similarly, reflecting on the qualities and the virtues of the Buddha has a very powerful effect. And usually what we do in that practice is we bring to mind the Buddha. Maybe we see a Buddha image. The Buddha's on this side. Um, We see the Buddha image and we remember, okay, and then we think of the Buddha. But we're not thinking of the statue and the artist who made the statue. Actually, the, the Buddha didn't have that hairdo. But that's symbolism. That's teaching something about, about the Buddha's qualities. And a lot of the symbolism in the statues are teaching tools to recollect the virtues and the beautiful qualities of the Buddha. But we think about the Buddha. And then we don't focus on the just the Buddha as some kind of mythical figure. We focus on something about about him that we respect. Maybe that he was a remarkable teacher. I mean it and, and the compassion that he taught with was extraordinary. There were so many easier things he could have done in his life than teach the Dhamma. There really were. I mean, he could have stayed with his family and had a comfortable life. But no, for the benefit of the world, out of compassion, he taught, and he taught with tremendous skill. To me, that's very inspiring. And when I think of that, I'm happy. I also like to think of the quality of his mind. What, is, what could it be like to have a mind that is utterly free of greed, hate, and delusion? We might sense moments in our lives, periods of our lives, times in our meditation when we sense the beauty and the purity of the mind. But what would it be like to live knowing that all greed, all hate, and all delusion had been uprooted? To me, that's an inspiring thought about the Buddha that brings great joy. We can think about the purity of his conduct and the way that he kept his precepts. We can think about the, the, the way he undertook renunciation practices and lived simply in the forest as a very noble way of living. We can think about the diligence of his practice, that he still meditated throughout his whole life. And we can just think about the fact that he discovered the path, It's hard enough for us to practice it when we have the teachings, we have the books, we have teachers. He had to discover it, as well as formulate a way to teach it out of compassion. That's extraordinary. And so when we think about the Buddha, we think about a virtue. And you just pick one, one virtue, and let the mind concentrate on it, turn it around. You don't have to pick a whole lot of different things about the whole Buddha's biography. Just one virtue. I often like to use the one about um, about the, the the pure the the mind that's pure of greed, hate, and delusion. Or I feel so. Or the gra- the gratitude. Um, I like to think of also him as a teacher because I feel so much gratitude that he offered those teachings, and and that just brings me delight every time I think because that you know, that only happened out of his virtue, out of his generosity. So we can use the reflections on the Buddha sometimes as a meditation practice. It calms the mind, it quiets the mind, it concentrates the mind, but also it inspires us. So if we're practicing along and we feel like our inspiration is faltering, you know, maybe it's in the middle of a retreat and we're going through a rough patch, just turning the attention to our own virtues or to the beautiful qualities of the Buddha, can quickly invigorate us and encourage us to continue. Also, when I think about the Buddha, when I think about the Buddha's qualities, the qualities of the awakened mind, it helps me let go of any short-term expectations I had for my practice. Because sometimes we suffer because we think think it should be easier than it is, or we think we should be developing faster than we are. And when we realize and contemplate how incredibly profound this path of awakening is, then it's easier to lighten up a bit on ourselves because we're in it for the long run. We don't need to demand that quick and pleasant results appear for us that they be measurable, that they be visible. We can sense the profound potential of the trajectory of our practice and reflect that that potential is usually enough to inspire us and to dispel whatever discouragement may have crept into the mind. There's a Sri Lankan custom of maintaining a book of merit. And the practice was that, this was for the kings in, in the old days, a minister was um, uh, responsible for recording the virtuous actions taken by the king. So whenever ever the king did something good, You know, the kings sometimes don't always do good things. But when the king did do something good, they would write it in the Book of Merit so that it would be remembered. And then when the king was laying on his deathbed, the minister's job was to read that book to him, to remind him of all the good things that he did. I don't think we should leave this as a practice just for royalty. Why don't we each start our own book of merit? It's not an egotistical book. Look what a great person I am. No, we just remember, we take note of the good things that we do in our lives. I'd like to take five minutes of quiet. For those of you that have paper and a pencil, I would suggest that you start your book of merit right now that you just make a list of good things you have done in your life. And those of you that don't have anything to write on, I'd like you to just think about it. Make a list in your mind. Reflect on good things that you've done. And as you're reflecting, let yourself be happy that you actually made the choice to do those things. Sometimes things don't turn out the way we want them. And we did a good thing, but it didn't exactly come out as perfect as we would have liked. The results are not under our control. So don't worry about that. But do reflect on actions that you took that were motivated for the good. Virtuous things. Acts of generosity acts of restraint, not lying, not stealing, not harming, not engaging in sexual activity that you knew would cause harm, helping people, acts of compassion. helping others to succeed.